Well, I want to jump in today uh, with a continuation of really what we've been talking about for a couple of weeks now, how we ended 2021 and how we've begun 2022. Uh, and so I want to reset a little bit for guys who maybe haven't been on the calls or haven't been able to watch the recordings. Brian and I are pretty convinced, and this isn't, you know, Nostradamus stuff. It's pretty obvious that the world is changing very rapidly uh, and, and what it means to be the church or how we do church uh, is changing very rapidly as well. Many of us, not all of us, in fact, Every time I say this, I get an email, right? So I'll, I'll say it again and, and wait for your email. But most churches that I'm talking to around the country are down about 40%. 40 to 60% is kind of the range that I'm seeing. Now, I, I got an email from Steve Hart this week saying, man, we are strong. Our budget's strong. Everything's good. And I'm, I am happy for Steve Hart. That's because Steve's a great leader. And, uh, and, and I'm really thankful that that's happening for him. Um, so I, I get it. There are exceptions to this. But I, I do believe that the rule and Brian and I are in lockstep on this. The rule is uh, that most of the churches we're talking to are down significantly and facing the dual threat of ongoing, never-ending COVID, as well as the realities of a changing culture, okay? And, and those two dual threats have caused what I think really is an existential crisis uh, in the church in the West. And I, and I emphasize the West because that's all I know. That's all I've ever led. Uh, and, and I do think some of the challenges we're facing are unique to the West. Um, and so this, this, is, this is what we want to talk about. What does it mean to be the church, to lead churches? What does it mean to be a Christian leader? This is kind of the question that I'm becoming a bit obsessed with, is what does Christian leadership look like uh, in this coming era for the next 10, 20 years? What, is, what does Christian leadership look like? And I, and I use that broadly. Most of our work is with church leaders, but not all of it, right? We're working with a company right now, a tech company that is led by Christians and is very committed to a Christian ideas about business. And they're asking these exact same questions. What does it look like to be a Christian company? How do I lead as a Christian? So even though Pastor Guide is certainly about pastors, I do think some of these ideas are applicable uh, in all spheres of life. So last week we talked about understanding the storm, right? And understanding the storm that we are faced with, not somebody else's storm, not the storms that are happening on Twitter or social media, but really what is happening in my town, in my city, in my county, in my state? What are my people really dealing with and how can I address that in an effective way? So we're gonna take at least three more weeks to talk about this. Um, but this is going to be a recurring theme, not only of Pastor Guide, but all of what we're doing here at in the kind of the context world. And we teased a little bit of this at the end of last year, um, that, that we've got some pretty big plans and big things that are rolling out this year that we're pretty excited about. I am giving more and more and more of my time to this and, and pretty convinced that we can be really helpful to the church, not only with Pastor God, we're going to start some Pastor Guide cohorts uh, that, that I think are going to be great. And I'm really excited about that. Um, ongoing coaching, 
uh, we've got the staffing stuff that's been happening and that's been going really, really well and, and adding new ways to do staffing in, in ways that everybody can afford and that will serve this new reality of church going forward. Um, but then also some consulting stuff uh, as we're trying to build out some, some strategies and products and, and things that we can do to, as we identify, hey, here's what's changing in the world. How can we help churches adjust to and respond to what's changing in the world? So um, all of that's coming. We're, we're, uh, we're going to be rolling that out uh, this month and next month. And, uh, and we're excited about that, including some price changes to pastor guide. So if you've been hanging in with us and going, man, I don't know, it's expensive. Uh, I, you know, I'm sorry that, that uh, 97 bucks a month is expensive for you, but uh, we are going to be given an even better price for that. So hang with us. That's coming where we're rethinking everything that we're doing. So uh, very excited about the future. But what we're going to do for these next couple of weeks is this. Last week, we talked about understanding the storm. This week, we're talking about it, what it means to be the church in the storm. So a church for the storm, uh, part one. And then next week, a church for the storm, part two. And the way I'm, I'm breaking those down, next week, we're going to get super practical and tactical, strategic, really simple things like how we think differently about buildings, how we think differently about money. What are the, you know, where should we be allocating resources um, that, that we're going to get, uh, get to next week? The week after that, we're going to be talking about leadership for the storm, Christian leadership for the storm, start to unpack some of what Brian and I have been working on in terms of leadership. Uh, and that's going to be a, kind of an ever evolving thing. This week, we are going to talk about um, what it looks like to be a church for the storm, but kind of from a philosophical or theological standpoint. And, uh, and, and, I'm, and I, I'm excited about this. These are big ideas that I hope we can just kind of keep talking about throughout the year. But there are things that, that I've been working on for, for a while now. Um, you know, just if you don't know me, I've been planting churches since 2004. My first church plant was in Tempe, Arizona in 2004, which Arizona is not a, you know, culturally left progressive state. But if there is that in Arizona, it's Tempe. Uh, Tempe is where Arizona State University is. Um, Brian's not here, so I can make a really big point about how much better Arizona State is than University of Arizona, where he went to school. It's not even honestly a comparison. In Arizona, it's, it's kind of a joke. U of A is kind of a junior college. Um, he doesn't know that, so like, let's be cool about it, but that's the reality. Um, but in Tempe, because it's a college town, very progressive you know, part of the city, it was at, we had an openly gay mayor. That was a very normal part of what we were doing. From there, moved to San Francisco, planted a church in San Francisco. From there, moved to Seattle, planted a church uh, in Capitol Hill in Seattle. We were, uh, you know, like our church building was inside the lines of the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone. We were right in the thick of things. Um, and now here in Los Angeles, right? So this, uh, my, the last really 20 years of ministry for me have been in progressive, uh, secular, lefty kind of cities. And so the benefit of that is 
I've seen some of this stuff on the kind of been on the leading edge of some of this progressive leftedness. Um, and so the storms hitting those cities and those churches before it's hitting the rest, it's kind of rolling through the country that way. And so some of this stuff, the stuff I've been working on for a long time, because we were facing these realities, you know, in San Francisco, in Seattle, and now in Los Angeles, right? So like I, I've, I've told the story a number of times, and I'm not sure I've told it on pastor guide. But when we were in Capitol Hill, we were renting a church, a Lutheran church uh, in the evenings to do services. And um, I, we got kicked out of that because of our conservative views on sexuality, which we had been upfront about uh, from the beginning. But one of the elders of that church sat me down and basically, you know, in response to our position on sexuality, said, where the F, and, and use the word, where the F does that leave trans people? And he was very upset with me. We were in a public place at a cafe there in Capitol Hill. And I thought, you know what? I've never been F-bombed by an elder, which, you know, maybe you guys have, uh, but certainly not about the just just believing women are women, right? Like this isn't even women. In, I, I was thinking to myself, you, you don't even want to hear about complementarianism, right? Um, and so this is this is kind of what we've been facing down for a long time, 20 years in my ministry now. And so some of this stuff is, is, is stuff that, that really is time tested uh, uh, because of our, our work um, in, in some of these cities. So some of this is going to apply to you immediately. Some of it's going to be down the road, but I think it's all stuff that we need to be prepared for. So um, we're gonna talk about some of this philosophical, theological stuff. So I've got three big ideas that, that I wanna talk about, and then we're gonna do Q&A at the end. So if you have questions along the way, please post those questions. Wanna to talk uh, to you guys about this. We want this stuff to be uh, you know, conversational, dialogical, and, and relevant for you. So if there's stuff that you go, hey, we're not facing that, uh, but we are facing this, man, let's talk about that. So use the Q&A button, uh, not, the, not the chat button, and uh, we'll do some Q&A there at the beginning, okay? So uh, let's jump in. Idea number one, I invented a word for this uh, that is a, a, a mashup of three words, uh, but here's the idea. We need to do evangelship. Okay, evangelship. Now that's evangelism, apologetics, and discipleship all rolled into one. Pretty amazing, right? Don't steal that idea. Evangelship. Uh, we have to be doing all of these three things, and they all have to be integrated. Okay, here's what I mean. Um, our evangelism strategy, our apologetics, which you know has in some ways kind of fallen out of style in some in some corners of uh, evangelicalism, and our discipleship all have to be woven together into a coherent message, okay? All first, all of our evangelism should be apologetic, okay? Obviously by that, I don't mean we're apologizing for Jesus, but we need to be making arguments all the time. Now, there's a difference between making arguments and arguing. I am not saying that we should be arguing all the time. Fact, I think we should be arguing very little. And if if I if you could just follow some advice from Uncle Justin, I would say, do not ever argue on social media. Twitter makes for really good windows, terrible doors. It's a good way to look at what's going on around you outside your world. It's a bad way to enter into the conversation. Okay, Twitter in particular makes for better windows than doors. But 
All of our evangelism should be apologetic. We have to explain, confront, and outwit the culture's ideas, okay? So we cannot simply just talk about Jesus and expect all of the other stuff to go away. That is no longer the center of the conversation. When I was growing up in ministry and, and when I was growing up in youth group, the questions were about kind of like all of the world's religions and how is, why is Jesus the best option and why, you know, why what, the exclusivity of Christ and, and some of these kinds of things. All of that is still relevant, but it's not the thing that is the first barrier to entry. Okay. So when we do evangelism, we have to make arguments for why we believe what we believe and to be able to demonstrate the logical coherence of it. And this is, I would argue, one of the great advantages. I think, I think the Christian message, and, and just from a strategic, you know, eliminating the Holy Spirit, the, the kind of transformative work of the Spirit, which I don't want to do just for the sake of this conversation, like the two advantages that the Christian message has, the gospel message has in our culture is one, it's grace-filled, not works-filled, right? So the, the, everything around us is based on a, a meritocracy. It is based on success and productivity, right? And there is no rest in the philosophy of this world the way that there is rest in grace. And I think that's a huge, huge advantage to our message. The other is that our message is coherent. It is logically consistent. It is, uh, as opposed to the world's, which is insane most of the time. Most of the world's logic or illogic around things like gender and sexuality, it just makes no sense. And people know it, which is why they won't let you talk about it logically, right? And there are a lot of other things that fall into this category. Much of the kind of far left dialogue around identity, gender, sexuality, race, a lot of the far left stuff is just completely insane and illogical, which is why they won't have logical conversations about it, which is fine. But when we present the gospel, we present Christianity, not only do we need to be winsome and compelling and, and gracious and kind and humble and all those things, we have to outwit and demonstrate the logic of our faith. So that's what I mean when I say we have to marry apologetics to our evangelism. We can start by deconstructing the arguments and ideas of the world around us and showing how, again, in a humble and kind and gracious way, showing how the gospel or Christianity is actually far more logical, makes way more sense, and leads to greater human flourishing. Okay? So all of our evangelism should be apologetic. Two, all of our evangelism should be discipleship or at least pre-discipleship. We have to tell the whole story, okay? And I think this is a huge part of this, right? There, there was a day where, you know, Ray Comfort could stand at Venice Beach and with a banana and do his little song and dance evangelism thing. And maybe there was a day where, where that worked. I think now the entry points to the gospel, the entry points to the Christian faith have changed and they're, they're, they're just different than they once were. So we have to tell the whole story, right? Keller talks about this a lot. 
our our grandparents, the modern generation, you know, the 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 story was that the evangelism was kind of Billy Graham's message was you're bad, you know you're bad, but you but there was only one who could be good. You'll never measure up. Jesus measured up. You can measure up through Jesus, basically. And that's a terrible version. Billy did a much better job than that. But that was kind of the story. The entry points have radically changed. And so we have to tell the whole creation, fall, redemption, restoration story, along with some of the implications of it, right? This is kind of a kingdom-minded or a kingdom theology uh, evangelism. That, that really what Christ accomplished on the cross was not simply forgiveness of sins that allows us to go to heaven to be with God forever, but it was the inauguration of an entire kingdom, an entire belief system and worldview and way of being in the world um, that is what we are inviting people into, okay? So I said this in a sermon the other day. It's not just that we believe in Jesus, we also have to believe Jesus, right? Not just believe that he existed or believe that this one thing he said about being the savior and Messiah is the true thing. We have to believe him, believe his words, believe his teaching, right? It's not just an invitation to be saved by grace. It's a holistic worldview, lifestyle, belief, belief system. It's all of it. And I think that that's actually a win, not a loss, right? We could look at that and go, oh gosh, there's so much people have to understand. And sure, in the long run, that might be true, but I think what it actually gives us is a whole bunch of entry points, okay? Because there's so much insanity out there. There's so much that doesn't make sense. There's so much that doesn't add up. There's so much pressure that that actually gives us a ton of different ways to engage people and, and to present the gospel as the holistic thing that it is, okay? So our evangelism has to also include discipleship. It has to be really discipleship focused, okay? Three, all of our discipleship should be evangelistic, okay? So this is not a new idea either. We have to, you know, it has to be kind of a continuous movement that we take people through from pre-evangelism to evangelism to discipleship and all that. But I think it needs to be far more synthesized than it has been. Here's why. Maybe a different why than before. All of our discipleship should be evangelistic in the sense that our people need to be constantly one to the ideas of the gospel. We should assume that they are constantly being evangelized by the world. And so all of our discipleship has to be evangelistic. So um, when we were in Seattle, I wrote a catechism of sorts um, that was designed to be a, a kind of missional catechism, right? So it goes through all of the major doctrines of the faith, it's 48 lessons, um, it goes through all of the major doctrines and ethical ideas and spiritual practices and all of that, 48 of them, but it frames it all up in a kind of missional sense. What does it mean to believe in creation in the world around us? And how would we explain our view of creation in the world around us? And what is the, what is the win from an apologetic standpoint? Why is this actually a much better vision for human flourishing? Okay, so we need to constantly win our people to the ideas of the gospel because they are being constantly evangelized by the world. And, and this may seem pessimistic, we should assume that many of our people that we are discipling are not actually Christians, 
right? And so our discipleship has to be evangelistic because for a long, long time, and actually this is part of like the win of this great sorting that's happening right now is it's no longer culturally acceptable to go to church. It's no longer culturally acceptable to be an, an Orthodox conservative Christian. It's not it's certainly not an advantage in most cities. And now it's not even acceptable, acceptable in many cities. Um, so there's a sorting that's happened. So not only do we, you know, we're, we're, we're bearing kind of the burden of that, but it also helps to kind of clarify who's actually a Christian, who's actually with us. And so there is some advantage to this, but I think it's still safe to assume that there are people in our churches that we're trying to do discipleship with that just simply are not Christians. And so our discipleship also has to be evangelistic. Uh, fourth, all of our discipleship should be apologetic. And this is just, you know, kind of more of the same, but we have to make arguments and we have to equip our people to make arguments graciously and humbly, but we have to give our people the why behind what we're saying. We have to give them the arguments. And, and again, I hope you understand what I mean by arguments. I don't want you to argue. I think that's almost useless, um, but you have to know the arguments. My conviction is most of our people are like two why questions away from losing their faith, right? So they're at the water cooler, if such a thing exists uh, anymore. And somebody goes, oh, you're a Christian. So what, so you're against gays, right? Right, and, and they don't know how to say it, but they say it in the worst possible sense. Our people have to be able to know why they believe what they believe. If they don't know why they believe what they believe, their, their arguments will crumble they will crumble, they will begin to, you know, lose faith, you know, in this, in a, in a practical sense, uh, and, and it'll fall apart. All of our people are living in a world that would think that they are bigots and homophobes if they knew the truth of what they believed. The water, water cooler is just simply not a safe space to be Christian. And so our, our discipleship has to be apologetic, okay? So our evangelism has to be apologetic, our evangelism has to be oriented towards discipleship. Our discipleship has to be evangelistic. Our discipleship has to be apologetic. It all has to weave into one. And there's no better way to describe that than saying it, it has to be evangelistic, right? Trademarked, okay, don't steal that. All right, that's the first big idea. I got two more big ideas and then we'll do q and I'm gonna check to see, uh, no questions yet. Okay, guys, let's bring it. Bring the questions, please. I see Chris Rich uh, doing some uh, some commentary along the way. Uh, Tim Stewart, I love that. I want to talk about Jordan Peterson. Put that in the Q&A. Maybe you just did. Nope. Put that in the Q&A, uh, Tim, because I, I would love to talk about uh, Jordan Peterson here in a minute. I think he's a pretty important guy in this whole conversation. Okay, number two. These last two are going to go a little faster. Everything should be about real life. Everything should be oriented towards real life. Our mission statement uh, at Icon Church in Seattle was that we want to make disciples who follow Jesus faithfully in real life. That meant all of our ministry, all of our discipleship, all of our preaching was oriented towards equipping people to be Christian in real life, okay? What I mean by that is, 
most of, and I grew up a Christian, I'm 43 now. So I grew up, uh, you know, in the eighties and nineties in, in Christianity youth group and all of that. And it did a great, I, I had a great church experience, great youth group experience, nothing to complain about there, but it really just equipped me to be good at church. Okay. And I remember very vividly um, in, in my high school years, having a pastor say, you are a, a church guy. You, you get church. You like church. You, you, you're a church guy. And I remember wearing that as a badge of honor. And, and you know, I felt called ministry. And so I, I thought that was a really good thing. And I still think it's a good thing. But I think what was missed was an equipping of my faith for real life. So whether it's discipleship, leadership development, preaching, groups, curriculum, content, catechism, all of it should be aimed at answering the question, how does this play out in real life? How does it play out at work? How does it play out with my family, community, politics, media, culture, social media, all of it, okay? We have to be thinking about these things all the time. And we should have been thinking about this stuff all along. And maybe you have, right? But I think that there is a way to structure the church that reinforces the church, right? There's a way to talk about what we're doing that makes the church the center, okay? There's a way to structure groups. There's a way to structure your preaching. There's a way to structure catechism or, or you know, discipleship, whatever you guys do, that just is kind of mutually reinforcing, right? There's a way to do leadership development that is simply preparing people to be church leaders. That's not bad, but it's not enough, okay? We have to be equipping our people to be focused on the real world. So one of the things that I developed way back in Phoenix, and it's just kind of continued to develop over the years, I've done it in Seattle and San Francisco and now LA, is vocational leadership development. It is specifically leadership development designed to equip our people to be Christian leaders in the workplace, okay? It has nothing to do with the church. It has nothing to do with being a good elder or deacon or small group leader. It is entirely focused on how can you think well about being a leader at Facebook, at Amazon, at all of these places, Twitter and Google and, and whatever else in the, in the film industry here, um, wherever you were, I want to equip you to be a great Christian leader in your workplace. Or if you are a, you know, stay-at-home mom or you're, you know, a homeschool mom or homeschool dad or whatever it is, like, how do I equip you to think Christianly about your world? So how do we frame our preaching? How do we frame our uh, discipleship, our leadership development, our groups, all of that? Um, you know, there, there's some really practical things. You know, you, you write small group questions. There is a way to write small group questions that is Bible study, right? All of the questions are about the text and about our understanding of the text. There's a way to, to build, uh, you know, to write small group questions that are about how to be really kind of moral people, okay? It's not bad. It's good. In fact, we'll talk about that more in a minute. Um, there's a way to, to structure small group questions to reinforce the church, right? Like how can you be, how can you serve the church in these ways, right? Like how can you be a better church member? And then there's a way to, to structure small group questions that make, that force people to think about how do we apply this at school, at work, where they live, work, learn, and play, right? 
Um, and I, I think those are the kinds of things that we have to do, right? So I'm doing, uh, I'm preaching this Sunday uh, out of Matthew chapter 18, verse 7 through 9, talking about if you, you know, your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off, right? Well, I'm going to talk, I'm going to teach the text and I'm going to tell them exactly what Jesus is talking about in the historical context and cultural context and all those things. But, you know, I'm going to start by saying, you know, the idea of sin has fallen out of fashion, but what hasn't fallen out of fashion is telling people what to do, right? So we may use the words harm or violence or toxic instead of sin, but we're saying the same things. Somebody gets to decide what is harm and what is not harm. What is violence? And what is not violence? What is toxic and what is not toxic? That's just sin, right? So being able to draw in the kind of ideas from the world and then on the back end go, okay, now how do we think as Christians about these conversations that are happening in light of how serious Jesus takes sin? So much so that not only would he tell us to cut off our hands, but then he went and died for it, right? So being able to equip people and kind of reframe what we're doing to think about these ideas but think about them in the context of the world around them. I think everything we do has to be oriented towards real life, okay? Number three, I think we need to reclaim godliness without legalism, okay? We need to reclaim godliness without legalism. One of the ways I think we are losing this battle in culture is because we have not been particularly godly, or at least famous folks haven't been, or at least we haven't been on social media, okay? I think, especially in my world, I don't want to assume all of us are in the same world, my kind of reformed, complementarian, grace-oriented world, we can lose the call to godliness in our efforts to emphasize grace. And I think we need to recapture the tension between salvation by grace alone and a clear call to godliness in our people, right? Scriptures tell us that the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, right? These are the things that need to be coming out of us because they are the fruit of the Spirit, okay? When the Spirit is at work in us, this is what should be coming out of us. Now, a just a quick check of Twitter uh, through this lens of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, I would give Christians in large part an F, right? This is not how we present ourselves to the culture. Now, does this mean we don't confront bad ideas? Absolutely not. Does it mean we don't stand up for the truth of the gospel? Absolutely not. But we've been given the how, right? We've been given the values, the, the guardrails, that we should absolutely stand up for the truth of the gospel and, and good ideas that are truthful and life-giving and do that in a spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I think we need to recapture that tension between godliness and salvation by grace. In fact, I read this, um, I mentioned, if you are getting our weekly email, um, uh, I, I put this quote in, in this week's email, so this may be or, 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 you know, in a recent email. It's a little bit redundant, but um, in... Uh, at World Magazine, Tim Keller has been doing a series of interviews. One of the questions he was asked is this, says many Christians struggle to steward 
their relationship with the world's culture. Do you see the world's culture as becoming increasingly hostile towards Christian values? And this was Keller's answer. He said, absolutely, yes. The culture is more hostile to Christianity, whether speaking of the academy, the media, government, business, popular entertainment, the arts, or social media, our culture is growing more hostile towards Christian beliefs and values. It's not the same as it's always been. He says this, the question is, how do you respond to this? And that requires a week's answer or a sentence. I opt for the sentence. He says this, first, repent for the ways Christians' inconsistent lives have harmed the church's credibility. Second, love your neighbor as yourself. Third, let people know you are a believer. Don't hide it. Fourth, make sure you are not harsh or clumsy in your words. Make sure it's the gospel that offends and not you. And last, don't be afraid of persecution. Jesus promises to be with you. Now, I was sent that quote from Keller by a friend of mine who was a little put off by Keller's answer that we should, as Christians, repent of the ways in which we have kind of wrongfully engaged on some of these ideas. And I pushed back on my friend and said, listen, we can't control what the world's going to do. Keller says this, Jesus tells us the world's going to hate us, the world's going to persecute us because we stand with Jesus, okay? That, that's our baseline. The world killed Jesus. That's our baseline. All we can control is our faithfulness to the truth and the way in which we engage the people around us. And our, hopefully our faithfulness to the truth is consistent and the way in which we engage the people around us exemplifies the fruit of the spirit. And I think we need to push our people more and more back to this idea of godliness, um, which, I mean, just seems crazy to have to say, and maybe it is, maybe this is stuff you guys have been really consistent on, but I think we have to live in that tension between salvation by grace alone and what the fruit of the spirit is. And we have to hold ourselves accountable to living by the fruit of the spirit, because I think that's our path forward as a church. And it's our path forward as Christians to be able to consistently and, and in a way that, that might have credibility to say, hey, this is the truth. If, if our lives don't reflect a godliness that would, would kind of back up what we say is the truth, why would anyone listen to us, right? Why would anyone listen to us? And I think that that godliness, you read Rodney Stark and you read all these historians, you read Dominion uh, by Tom Holland and all, all of this, the story of the early church, it was a faithfulness to Orthodox theology and a real love and sacrifice for the people around us that caused this explosive growth in a very hostile environment. And so if we're going to recapture any of that evangelistic momentum, I think that those two things have to be held in tension. So that was a lot. Anytime it's just me, it becomes a bit of a fire hose. But just to recap real quick before we hit the questions. So throw your questions in the Q&A. We've got a couple in there. But to recap what we talked about today, one, do evangelship evangelism, apologetics, and discipleship all rolled into one. Two, everything should be about real life, a focus on how do we equip people for real life. And three, we need to recapture the idea of godliness without devolving into legalism. Okay, so we got we to hold those two things in tension. Okay, let's get after these questions in our last 10 minutes here. All right, question number one uh, from Timothy. Do you think this is why some of the recent talks about God meaning truth by Jordan Peterson and company are so popular and getting so much online attention? 
recently heard this podcast about the problem with atheism and Jonathan Pajot said many are becoming Christians because of his podcast. This is fascinating to me and I've been listening to many of them and his guests. I 100% think that, Timothy. I am a huge fan of Jordan Peterson. I hope and pray that he becomes a Christian because we need more Jordan Peterson and his voice. Um, but his, his message is ultimately, um, it's hollow at the center because it doesn't have gospel. But what he captures so well, I think, is that he um, passionately, you know, it's hard to watch a Jordan Peterson talk where he doesn't get emotional. He cares so much about young men and the way that that culture trashes young men. He cares about the truth. He cares about these things really passionately, but also very smartly dismantles the ill logic of the world around him. Okay. And that's massively important to be able to cut through the BS and just go, no, 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 this makes no sense. Here's why it makes no sense, but not in a caustic kind of way. And, you know, I don't want to throw too many people, you know, under the bus or be negative, but this is why I personally prefer Jordan Peterson to someone like Ben Shapiro, who I also think is really right a lot of the time, but the way in which he comes across, the way in which he communicates it, I think is wildly unhelpful so many times because it just is dismissive and arrogant and it doesn't come across humble. I think Jordan Peterson does a much better job coming across humbly um, and, and addressing these, these issues in a, in a straightforward manner. So yes, I am very much impacted by, uh, by Jordan Peterson and many like him and think that they have a lot of really helpful things to say and to teach uh, pastors. Uh, all, you should all read 12 Rules for Life and his follow up another 12 Rules for Life. Uh, they're, they're really helpful books. That's a great question, Timothy. Um, okay, uh, Thomas, expand on, uh, let's see, it says, expand on your comment. Our people are two why questions away from losing their faith. Uh, good question. My point with that is, I don't think many of our people, I mean, the, here's, here's a depressing uh, uh, exercise that you can do. In a classroom setting, tell, ask your people, hey, what is the gospel? Just have them write down on a piece of paper, not out loud, but just on a piece of paper, what is the gospel? Gather those up and you will be saddened. If Unless, Thomas, your people are way better than mine, you will be saddened by how many of them have a either a truncated view of the gospel, have a really simplistic view of the gospel, have a pretty works-oriented view of the gospel, um, and how few of them could really, in three to five sentences, unpack a robust gospel vision, okay? Um, that's on the, like, the core thing, right? If you were to tell them, hey, you know, in three to five sentences, um, explain in, a, in somewhat of an apologetic kind of way, like, imagine you're explaining to a non-Christian your views on sexuality and just have them do that. I think you would be depressed by what the answer is. And so the, my, my point in saying two why questions is because if they actually get into a situation where someone says, hey, why do you believe that? And they go, well, you know, the Bible says so. Oh, okay, well, why do you believe the Bible? Well, because it's the word of God. How do you know that? Uh, right? Like the, the, it just breaks down so quickly. So where, uh, you know, that there's a Luther quote that I'm going to paraphrase. People ask why he preaches the gospel all the time. He goes, 
I, I'm going to beat the gospel into people's heads relentlessly until they get it. And the reality is people just don't get it. They don't know the arguments. They don't know the things. And so when confronted with even halfway decent arguments, it all crumbles down because they just haven't been equipped to answer those questions well. So it's not so much a critique of them as it is a critique of our discipleship processes. And, and you know, most of our, uh, well, quick tangent on this, I would say most of our discipleship is reactive, not proactive, okay? So the, the quick history lesson is there was a day when everybody was catechized into the faith, and it was a systematic approach to building out answers to doctrinal questions and, and a vision for this, this kind of holistic thing. Well, at some point, that shifted from catechism to Sunday school, from Sunday school to small groups. And along the way, we've become far less comprehensive, far less proactive, to the point that most small groups now you know, are sermon-based. They're, they're dealing with really uber practical um, questions, and, and that's fine, but it's mostly reactive, right? So uh, we, we've heard the, the idea of like fruit to root discipleship. So what's happening? What's the fruit? And let's get to the root. That's good, but it's reactive. It's reactive to fruit rather than a proactive, like let's start at the beginning, let's build in prayer life, let's build in Bible, let's build in conviction about the scriptures, let's give you arguments for why the scriptures are trustworthy, let's build a theology of creation, let's build, build a theology of the Imago Dei, let's build a theology, right, that actually just a, a proactive, systematic, comprehensive discipleship thing. I have spent all 43 years of my life in church and never got that, and I was in really good churches, like reformed, complementarian, healthy gospel churches, and never got that proactive, comprehensive, you know, thing. So that's why I say most of our people are a couple of why questions from losing their faith. Um, it may be hyperbolic, but that's like, that's my thing is to be hyperbolic. Okay, Patrick and Brandon, last week, you mentioned that smaller churches are getting smaller, larger churches are getting larger. Could you expound on why you think that? Yes, I will next week. <laughs> We're going to talk really practically next week on that. But the short version of what, what I said last week was this. Um, it's going to become harder and harder and harder to be a sustainable church. Financially, uh, buildings, all, all of the practical realities are just going to get harder and harder as our kind of pool of people dries up and it becomes less normative to be a part of churches. So what I think you're going to find is churches that are large, and, and have the, the resources to withstand that, that storm are going to grow because the, you know, the churches are going to fail and some of those people are going to go to those large churches, okay? They have the, you know, it, it, when an economy struggles, Amazon doesn't struggle, you know, the mom and pop stores struggle, okay? So what I think you're going to find is those large churches that are equipped to, to weather the storm will grow and some of those small churches will shrink down to becoming functionally missional communities and small groups and house churches and those kinds of things. And so I think you'll see more of that and more of the big, and you'll see less of the middle. But we're going to talk about that a lot next week and, and as we get really practical, strategic, and tactical, um, how to maybe avoid some of that or how to prepare for some of that. So we'll, we'll talk about that more next week. Uh, okay. Uh, I'm sorry, I can't pronounce your name. Orai, Orai, I, I apologize. Uh, can you post the Keller quote? 
uh, yes, we'll post a link uh, on Facebook uh, to the article and I'll put a picture that I have uh, of the quote as well. So look for that on Facebook today. And then lastly, Fred Mock. Uh, re regarding Jordan Peterson, his ability to reach men, I'm guessing those guys who are becoming Christians are likely sitting at home listening with no intention to ever step foot into a church or even join an online faith community. How would you reach these guys and convince them church is vital? Fred, I uh, hope you're wrong. I have no idea uh, if you're right. I, um, uh, I hope, like, like I said, I hope you're wrong. Some strategies though. Um, one of the things that we actually tried to do in Seattle, we had it all set up and, and scheduled and then COVID hit. Um, there's a, a pastor, uh, a, it's not PCA, um, but he's Presbyterian or, or OCP, OPC or something like that. But by the name of Paul Vanderclay, look him up. He's a, a really, I like him a lot. He does kind of a YouTube channel. He's kind of a Jordan Peterson guy, but he does these videos where he talks through different things. It's, it's really good. Paul Vander Clay is a, you know, sounds like a good Dutch Calvinist. Um, but what he was doing was basically having Jordan Peterson watch parties or Jordan Peterson discussion parties, discussion forums. And so we were actually flying him out to Seattle. He was doing a whole West Coast swing, but where we would uh, advertise on Twitter and on these uh, Jordan Peterson Reddit forums and different things that, hey, we're going to get together with some Jordan Peterson fans and talk about, you know, some of this stuff. And, and he was, he's good at kind of emceeing that, moderating that conversation. Um, and that was a way we wanted to say, hey, like, we like Jordan Peterson too. Let's talk about some of these ideas. And we were going to host it at our church. And so that was one idea for how we were going to kind of connect some of those dots um, I think, uh, you know, engaging with those guys where they are, which is, you know, often Reddit and Twitter and some of these things, um, and, and engaging those conversations with them in those forums. Um, I also think there's ways in which we can, so we did a sermon series in Seattle, right when I got done reading the first Jordan Peterson book, I thought, I wonder if there's a way that we could incorporate some of the voice and, and the winsomeness of uh, Peterson in a sermon series. And so I did um, the first, uh, or I did the, the story of Abraham, so Genesis 12 through whatever. Um, and uh, the frame of it was um, Father Abraham, life lessons from, you know, for, from, from, you know, uh, Christianity's first father or something like that. Well, I can't remember what the, the, the frame of it exactly was in the title, but the Father Abraham thing was the idea. And so we wanted to look at his life and, and kind of start by principalizing, like, okay, what can we learn from his life the way Peterson does um, with these Old Testament stories, right? Like these Jungian uh, archetypes that he, that he draws out. Now, again, what he misses is the gospel in those things, and that was what I was able to put back in. But it was a way to kind of talk in a Peterson-esque, like, what can we draw out? What are principles, universal truths we can draw out from the text and then connect it back to the gospel, okay? And so I think engaging those guys where they are and, and kind of framing some of the conversation, some of how we talk about what we're doing uh, in those ways. And then the last thing I would say is this, Fred, don't underestimate the desire that young men have um, uh, for community and camaraderie. And I think, you know, if I can, I mean, we're amongst friends here. 
I think one of the most tragic things that has happened um, as a result of kind of the rise of LGBTQ stuff is the loss of intimate male friendship. It, it, is, it is a tragedy, uh, the loss of those spaces and those relationships and the potential friendship and intimacy that guys can have. Um, and so one way that I have uh, tried to, uh, I think there's been a lot of ways guys have tried to, to replace that, uh, that are, you know, maybe a little over macho and kind of prove the premise of the Jesus and John Wayne stuff. Um, but uh, there, there are some really healthy ways to do that. One thing that I've started to do here in Los Angeles is um, I, I host a, a fire pit uh, once a month. And I have a couple of questions that we ask the guys every month and we just get together and it's very casual. I build a fire in my backyard. We have drinks and some guys bring cigars and, you know, and we just talk and it's, and the questions are about, Hey, what's going on in your life? What's challenging? What's awesome. And, and what do you need? How can we, how can we be of help to you? And we talk about that and, and it's not overtly Christian. Um, it's a mix usually of Christian and non-Christian guys, but it's just a it's just a way to build some camaraderie, and I just would not underestimate how much those guys long for that, want it. Uh, and yes, Fred CrossFit, big fan. Uh, I, I am a CrossFitter, and uh, and take any opportunity I can to talk about it. Uh, I, I love it, and absolutely think that that's a way that these guys are getting connected. Um, and uh, yeah, Tim, 100%, we have a new guy in church who wanted brothers so bad he joined the Masonic Lodge. Yep, that desire for brotherhood is there. It's real, it's strong. And what we have to do is figure out how to, um, how to provide those spaces without them devolving into fight clubs or, you know, like MMA night or whatever. And I'm not against MMA. And if you want to fight each other, great. But like, there's got to be a way to do this that isn't just devolving back into uh, like I said, kind of proving the premise of the Jesus and John Wayne stuff, um, which I think is mostly junk, but absolutely. I mean, I think all of us can tell a story of when we're, we're like, okay, yeah, we see, we've seen how that's played out, right? Um, and and so we want to avoid that while also providing some of those spaces. So, all right, fellas, fifty-one minutes of my voice is is enough. Um, next week we're going to talk about practical, tactical. How what what are some things that we can do uh, to prepare our churches um, from budgets and buildings and and leadership development and structures and some of that stuff. Um, I'm I'm passionate about this stuff. Passionate about helping you guys figure it out and figuring it out together. So uh, go go do some stuff today. Go connect with some guys go wrestle them to the ground or something. Uh, have a great week. We'll talk soon and check Facebook. Uh, we want to get more active on Facebook. So if you guys want to jump post questions on Facebook, I'll be there. I'll post that Keller stuff right now. See you guys next week.